It's been a full day. Uh, let me thank those of you who have been here from the beginning. And let me also welcome those who've just joined us. Uh, for the new folks, I'm Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies and your host for today's symposium. Uh, we now conclude the day with our 17th annual B. Kenneth Simon Lecture in Constitutional Thought, uh, after which we'll have uh, a grand reception just outside in our Winter Garden, and I hope you'll all stay for that. This lecture series is, is named in honor of the man who endowed it, together with the chair that I'm honored to hold here at Cato. Like so many uh, who came of age during the Depression and served in World War II, the greatest generation, as it has been called, uh, the late Ken Simon was a true friend of liberty. Uh, following his service during the war, Ken earned a degree in engineering from Cornell. Uh, and then he returned to his native Pittsburgh, uh, where he started a manufacturing business, uh, raised a family, and in time dedicated himself to further furthering the ideas and the ideals of America's founders who had so inspired him. Uh, with this series of lectures, which is just one example of Ken's philanthropy, we've brought a distinguished group of judges and legal scholars and practicing attorneys to the podium to discuss and help keep alive those basic constitutional principles. Our first Simon lecture, for example, was on constitutionalism itself and was given by Douglas Ginsburg, then chief judge of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. Since then, the lectures have covered subjects ranging from property rights to religious freedom, economic liberty, the Ninth Amendment, educational freedom, progressivism, and more, all aimed at honoring America's first principles. Today's lecture by George Will promises to be no exception. In 1990, Mr. Will published Men at Work, the Craft of Baseball, which topped the New York Times bestselling list for two months. In 1998, he published Bunts, Kurt Flood, Camden Yards, Pete Rose, and other reflections on baseball, a bestselling collection of his writings on the subject. And in 2014, he published A Nice Little Place on the North Side, Wrigley Field at 100, which doubtless awakened the Cubs from their century-long slumber. <laughs> Now, you may be wondering why we've invited a man who's an expert on baseball to give a lecture on the Constitution. Well, it turns out that we have two national pastimes. One is baseball, the other is constitutional interpretation. And George Will happens to be an expert on both, on the hits and the errors in both fields. But unlike our previous Simon lecturers, all of whom were lawyers, Mr. Will comes to today's subject armed only with a doctorate in political philosophy from Princeton, where he currently serves as a trustee. Yet that training, better than law, enables one to step back and see not only the constitutional trees, but the forest as well. And that's manifest in the columns Mr. Will has written for the Washington Post since 1974, which today appear twice weekly in more than 400 newspapers, and for Newsweek magazine, for which he wrote a monthly essay from 1976 until 2011. And it's manifest also in Mr. Will's others books, Statecraft as Soulcraft, What Government Does, The New Season, A Spectator's Guide to the 1988 Election, Restoration, Congress Term Limits and the Recovery of Deliberative Democracy, and the eight collections of his Newsweek and Washington Post columns, the most recent entitled 
one man's America, the pleasures and provocations of our singular nation. Awarded a Pulitzer Prize for his commentary in 1977, in 1981, Mr. Will became a founding panel member on ABC television's This Week, where he spent over three decades providing regular commentary, followed by three years with Fox News, where he appeared regularly on Special Report on Fox News Sunday. He's now a regular contributor to MSNBC and NBC News. Here today to talk about the insufficiently dangerous branch, the difficulty with the counter-majoritarian difficulty, a provocative title, please welcome George Will. Thank you, Roger. You have given away the fact that I only write about politics to support my baseball habit. <laughs> Running for president in 1976, Jimmy Carter told voters, I am not a lawyer. Carter's boast is my confession to this august audience on this serious occasion. I did, however, come close to being a lawyer. Nearing the end of two years at Oxford, I was undecided between an academic career and a life in the law. So, temporizing, I applied for admission to a distinguished law school and to Princeton's PhD program in political philosophy. I chose to go to Princeton because it is midway between two cities with National League baseball teams. <laughs> this gives you some idea of my seriousness as a scholar. Anyway, as I say, I came close to being a lawyer. Now, baseball people say that close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. I, however, think that two ways that I prepared away from law school to think about American constitutional law brought me close to legal scholarship in important ways. First, the study of American political philosophy is inextricably entwined with constitutional law. The title of my doctoral dissertation was Beyond the Reach of Majorities. Some of you will recognize that phrase from Justice Robert Jackson's 1943 opinion in West Virginia v. Barnett, the second of the public school flag salute cases, in which Jackson wrote the following. The very purpose of a Bill of Rights was to withdraw certain subjects from the vicissitudes of political controversy, to place them beyond the reach of majorities and officials, and to establish them as legal principles to be applied by the courts. Fundamental rights may not be submitted to vote. They depend on the outcome of no election. Which rights are fundamental and which are not? What are the rights of majorities? You see what I mean when I say that political philosophy is done regularly in the gleaming white building that William Howard Taft caused to be built. By the way, the subtitle of my dissertation was Closed Questions in an Open Society. I shall have more to say about this anon. A second way that my academic career proved relevant to reasoning about constitutional law is this. My Oxford years, 1962 through 64, were during the high tide of linguistic philosophy. Perhaps the leading practitioner was J.L. Austin, whose ordinary language philosophy included the concept of speech acts. Linguistic philosophy was often arid and sterile regarding social and political questions. It had and has, however, something pertinent to say 
about today's skirmishing on the contested ground concerning originalism, textualism, and other rivalrous schools of thought about construing the Constitution. Austin's point was that any speech act, including, of course, written speech, is a performative activity. It involves promising, requesting, warning, exhorting, and so on. The meaning of the speech act depends on the speaker's intention and on the nature of the audience that the speaker intends to influence. The relevance of this to constitutional reasoning is that the original meaning of the Constitution's language depends on the intentions of the authors of this language, this speech act, which in turn depends on the audience they had in mind and the influence they hope to have on this audience. Linguistic philosophy's mode of analysis is, I think, especially relevant to what Jack Balkan calls living originalism. Balkan's phrase is not, as some might allege, an oxymoron. Rather, it denotes a defensible way to tiptoe through, tip through some intellectual minefields. It is paradoxical that in a nation where skepticism about government is at the core of the political philosophy bequeathed by the founders, the elaboration and application of this political philosophy has been done largely by or through a government institution, the Supreme Court. There is a profound truth about the American polity and its history that is sometimes missed even by the most accomplished students of American history. It is often said that ours is a nation indifferent to, even averse to, political philosophy. And it is said that this disposition is a virtue, a sign of national health. The theory is that only unhappy nations are constantly engaged in arguing about fundamental things, and that the paucity, actually it is merely a postulated paucity, of American political philosophy is evidence of a contented consensus about our polity's basic premises. For example, Daniel J. Borston, then a University of Chicago historian and later librarian of Congress, published a slender volume, The Genius of American Politics, which appeared in 1953 during America's post-war introspection about the nature and meaning of our nation's sudden global preeminence. Burston's argument, made with his characteristic verve and erudition, aimed to explain why our success was related to, quote, our antipathy to political theory. The genius of our democracy, said Burston, comes not from any geniuses of political thought comparable to Plato and Aristotle or Hobbes and Locke. Rather, it comes from, I quote, the unprecedented opportunities of this continent and from a peculiar and unrepeatable combination of historical circumstances. This explains, he went on, our inability to make a philosophy of them and why our nation has never produced a political philosopher of the stature of, say, Hobbes or Locke or a systematic theoretical work to rank with theirs. Well, Leave aside the fact that James Madison was a political philosopher of such stature. He was so because he was also a practicing politician. And leave aside the fact, which it surely is, that the Federalist Papers, although a compendium of newspaper columns, 
written in haste in response to a practical problem, the secure ratification of the Constitution, is a theoretical work that ranks with Hobbes's Leviathan and Locke's second treatise on civil government. Considered in the second decade of the 21st century, as we stand on the dark and bloody ground of today's political contentions, Borston's book remains interesting, but primarily as a period piece. It is a shard of America's now shattered consensus. Or more precisely, it is a document from the calm before the storm of the conservative counterattack against progressivism's complacent assumption that its ascendancy was secure. The American argument about philosophic fundamentals is not only ongoing, it is thoroughly woven into the fabric of our political life. Far from being rare and of marginal importance, real political philosophy is more central to our public life than to that of any other nation. It is implicated in almost all American policy debates of any consequence. Indeed, it is like Edgar Allan Poe's purloined letter, hidden in plain sight. All American political arguments involve, at bottom, interpretations of the Declaration of Independence and of the Constitution that was written to provide institutional architecture for governance according to the Declaration's precepts. So, Supreme Court justices and other constitutional lawyers are, whether or not they realize this and whether or not they like this, America's principal practitioners of political philosophy. A good starting point for constitutional reasoning informed by philosophy is with this fact. The first of the only 10 sentences that comprise the Gettysburg Address does not begin three score and 15 years ago. Lincoln did not say that our fathers brought forth a new nation by writing the Constitution. There is profound constitutional importance in the symbolic fact that constitutes the Constitutional Convention met in the room where the Declaration of Independence was debated and endorsed. Ratification of the Constitution created a new regime for a nation then 13 years old. The Declaration did not specify particulars about the proper regime for the new nation. Rather, it said that a regime is legitimate if it secures natural rights and if it governs by the recurrently expressed consent of the governed. The Supreme Court has defined citizenship as the right to have rights. Actually, people have rights independent of their civic status. The court should have said, consonant with the Declaration of Independence, that citizenship is the right to have one's natural rights recognized and their exercise protected. The Declaration is, as Cato's Timothy Sandifer says, the conscience of the Constitution. As he says, the essential drama of democracy derives from the inherent tension between the natural rights of the individual and the constructed right of the community to make such laws as the majority deems necessary and proper. So, the Declaration is not just chronologically prior to the Constitution, it is logically prior. Again, Sandifer, the Declaration sets the framework for reading the Constitution. 
By the terms with which the Declaration articulates the Constitution's purpose, which is to secure unalienable rights, the Declaration intimates the standards by which one can distinguish the proper from the improper exercises of majority rule. Freedom, says Sandifer, is the starting point of politics. Government's powers are secondary and derivative and therefore limited. Liberty is the goal at which democracy aims, not the other way around. The progressive project, now in its second century, has been forthrightly to reverse this, giving majority rule priority over liberty when they conflict as they do inevitably and frequently. The progressive project stands athwart what Madison wrote in 1792, the year after ratification of the Bill of Rights. In Europe, he said, charters of liberty have been granted by power. America has set the example of power granted by liberty. The Declaration, which mentions neither democracy nor majority rule, does not stipulate a particular form of government. Rather, it stipulates the two criteria of legitimate government to repeat. Such government secures the natural rights of the governed and receives their recurrently expressed consent. So, of the three prepositions in Lincoln's Gettysburg formulation, government of, by, and for the people, it is the third that is dispositive. Government is most probable to function for the people, will, that is, do what is most important for their happiness, secure their rights, if it is government of and by the people. So, the Declaration is only a contingently and implicitly democratic document. It implies that democracy is the form of government with the highest probability of governing for the people. On September 17, 18, 1787, the last day of the Constitutional Convention, George Washington, the convention's president, distilled into two sentences the essence of natural rights theory and of the unending debate about rights. End of the debate about unenumerated yet retained rights. Washington said, quote, individuals entering into society must give up a share of liberty to preserve the rest. It is at all times difficult to draw with precision the line between those rights which must be surrendered and those which may be reserved. Drawing this line is the fundamental task of the judicial branch, which is tertiary in order, but not in importance. This branch is the constitutional culmination. The legislative branch writes laws, and the head of the executive branch takes care that the laws are faithfully executed, at which point the judiciary is perpetually poised to scrutinize the content and application of the laws. This makes the judiciary, charged with the supervision of democracy, the epicenter of constitutional government. The idea that the federal judiciary wielding judicial review is an anomaly grafted onto popular government is mistaken. The judiciary is a republican institution in that it is connected to the people but indirectly. 
Its members are nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. America's judiciary also is a Republican institution because it stands not in opposition to, but in constructive tension with the principle of majority rule. Democracy and distrust usually are and always should be entwined. American constitutionalism with its necessary component of judicial review amounts to institutionalized distrust. It is not true that, as Dr. Stockman declares in Heinrich Ibsen's The Enemy of the People, that the majority is always wrong. It is true, however, that the majority often is wrong and that the majority often has a right to work its mistaken will anyway. The challenge is to determine the borders of that right and to have those borders policed by a non-majoritarian institution, the judiciary. Alexander Hamilton famously said that because the judiciary may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment, it will always be the branch least dangerous to the political rights of the Constitution. But Alexander Bickle considered judicial review philosophically and morally problematic because it makes the Supreme Court a deviant institution in American democracy the power to declare null and void laws that have been enacted by elected representatives of the people poses what Bickle called the counter-majoritarian difficulty. This is, however, a grave difficulty only if the sole or the overriding goal of the Constitution is simply to establish democracy, and if the distilled essence of democracy is that majority shall rule in whatever sphere of life where majorities wish to rule. Were that true, the court would indeed be a deviant institution. But such a reductionist understanding of American constitutionalism is peculiar. It is excessive to say, as often has been and still is said, that the Constitution is undemocratic or anti-democratic or anti-majoritarian. It is, however, accurate to say that the Constitution regards majority rule as but one component of a system of liberty. The most important political office is filled not by simple majority rule expressed directly, but by the Electoral College. Supreme Court justices and all other members of the federal judiciary are nominated by presidents, but must be confirmed by the Senate whose members were, until the 17th Amendment was ratified in 1913, elected indirectly by state legislatures. Of the major institutions created by the Constitution, Congress, the Presidency, the Supreme Court, only one half of one of them, the House of Representatives, was, in the framers' original design, directly elected by the people. Furthermore, the Constitution has 11 supermajority provisions pertaining to amendments, ratification of treaties, impeachments, and other matters. All such supermajority requirements are designed to empower minorities. One reason to empower minorities is that majority opinion often is not in any meaningful sense a judgment, meaning a conclusion reached on the basis of information and reflection. The processes of democracy are supposed to refine and elevate public opinion, not merely reflect it. 
But woe betide the political candidate who suggests that the public's opinion needs to be refined and elevated or even informed. When Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia died in February 2016, Senate Republicans argued that his successor should not be confirmed until the people had spoken in that year's presidential elections. It was, however, risible to assert that more than a negligible portion of the electorate had opinions about, say, constitutional originalism, or due fidelity to stare decisis, or the proper scope of Congress's powers to regulate interstate commerce. The problem is not that translating public opinion directly into public policy would be imprudent, which it certainly would be. Rather, the problem is that public opinion in any meaningful sense hardly exists about many, even most, public policies. Those whom Edmund Burke delicately called the less inquiring <laughs> might be as large a portion of the population today as they were when Burke wrote in the late 18th century. Then very few could vote, so the many had small incentive to be inquiring about politics and government. Today, everyone can vote, but no one can believe that his or her vote is apt to matter and few have the time or incentive to become conversant with the complexities of the policies administered by the gargantuan and or opaque administrative state. As Madison said in his analysis of ancient democracies, the larger the group engaged in determining the government's composition and behavior, the larger will be the portion who are of limited information and of weak capacities. There are two reasons why we should not be greatly concerned about the counter-majoritarian difficulty. First, much of what majoritarian institutions do is done not to satisfy a demand or even a desire of a majority. A vast majority is completely oblivious to most of what government does. Most voters, most of the time, are ignorant rationally so, of the government's processes and activities. The second reason to not lose sleep over the counter-majoritarian difficulty is that majority rule is, again, not the point of the American project. Sentimentalists about democracy generally insist that, it that its defects result because voters' views are sensible but ignored. It is, however, at least as often the case that democracy produces unfortunate results because voters' views are foolish but honored. Often the problem is not that government is unresponsive, but that it is too responsive. The political class is prudently reticent about the subject of the electorate's competence at rendering judgments, and democracies generate an ethos of contentment about their premises. So there rarely is heard a discouraging word about voters' political knowledge. It was therefore bracing, if naughty, for Winston Churchill to say, if he actually did so, sources differ, that, quote, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. <laughs> Nevertheless, many voters lack information about politics and government that this is so is undeniable. 
it also often is rational. And it raises awkward questions about concepts central to democratic theory, including consent, representation, public opinion, electoral mandates, and this is perhaps the fundamental function of modern democracy, the ability of voters to hold elected officials accountable. Cato's Ilius Soman argues that, in general, an individual's ignorance of public affairs is essentially rational because the likelihood of his or her vote being decisive in an election is vanishingly small. But if choosing to remain ignorant, to not invest the time and effort necessary to become knowledgeable, is rational individual behavior, this can and often does have destructive collective outcomes. The quantity of political ignorance matters because voting is not merely an act of individual choice. It also is the exercise of power over others. And, says Summon, the reality that most voters often are ignorant of even very basic political information is one of the better established findings of social science. For example, in the Cold War year of 1964, two years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, only 38% of Americans knew that the Soviet Union was not a member of NATO. In 2003, about 70% were unaware of enactment of the prescription drug entitlement, then the largest welfare state expansion since Medicare arrived in 1965. In a 2006 Zogby poll, only 42% could name the three branches of the federal government. Such voters cannot hold officials responsible because they cannot know what the government is doing or which parts of government are doing what. So political ignorance is, as Solomon says, an obstacle to its own alleviation. Given that more than 20% of Americans think the sun revolves around the earth, it is unsurprising that only 30% can name their two senators, and even at the peak of a campaign, a majority cannot name any congressional candidate in their district. According to a 2002 Columbia University study, 35% at that time believed that Karl Marx's from each according to his ability to each according to his need is in the US Constitution. <laughs> many people acquire political knowledge for the reason many people acquire sports knowledge, because it interests and entertains them, not because it will alter the outcome of any contest. And with confirmation bias, many people seek political information in order to reinforce their pre-existing views. Committed partisans are generally the most knowledgeable voters, independents the least. And the more political knowledge people have, the more apt they are to discuss politics with people who agree with them. A normal citizen learns about politics of the day the same way a child first learns a language by a blend of observation and osmosis of the conversation of society going on around the child. The average American expends more time becoming informed about choosing a car or an appliance than choosing a candidate. But then, the consequences of the former choices, cars and appliances, are immediate and discernible. <clears throat> the consequences of choosing a candidate often are neither. The single hardest thing for a practicing politician to understand 
said an experienced and successful politician, Britain's Tony Blair, is that most people, most of the time, don't give politics a first thought all day long. Or if they do, it is with a sigh. All of this should inform our thinking about how troubled one should be about the supposed counter-majoritarian difficulty that troubled the distinguished scholar who coined the phrase, Mr. Bickle. How troubled should we be? Not very. The Constitution, which is replete with prescriptions, tells Americans a number of things they cannot do even if a majority of them want them done. Nevertheless, there is a recurring impulse to argue that courts should have a somewhat majoritarian mentality or that they should be directly subjected to majoritarian supervision. In his 1912 campaign, Theodore Roosevelt argued that, quote, when a judge decides a constitutional question, when he decides what the people as a whole can and cannot do, the people should have the right to recall the decision if they think it is wrong. In Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign, she said, quote, the Supreme Court should represent all of us. Actually, it should represent no one. Not if we understand representation to mean serving as a mirror to the public. Reflecting what exactly? Or weighing the people's or a faction's interests. Interests in what exactly? Abraham Lincoln spoke more judiciously about the sometimes ambiguous role of the Supreme Court in America's democracy. In his first inaugural address, he asserted that the candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. Having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. Lincoln understood as well as any politician before or since that in a democracy, everything depends ultimately on public opinion and public opinion is shiftable sand. So too, however, is opinion among that small sliver of the public that thinks about how to responsibly apply the Constitution to the constantly changing circumstances of this dynamic republic's ever-churning society. In a recent column suggesting questions that senators might usefully ask in confirmation hearings for Supreme Court nominees, I included this one. Can you, the nominee, cite an important constitutional provision the meaning of which today is the same as the public meaning of the provisions text when it was written and ratified. And I said, the nominee certainly could not cite the regulation of interstate commerce or the establishment of religion or abridgments of freedom of speech or government takings of private property for public use or the prohibition of cruel and unusual punishments. In a supposed refutation of the point I was making, a critic wrote, I certainly consider the fact that all members of the House are elected every two years important. To which I would reply, that provision is important perhaps, but uninteresting. 
it is so because this provision has never occasioned, it could not occasion, a controversy concerning constitutional reasoning as distinct from policy reasoning. The same is true of the requirement that members of the House and Senate must be at least 25 and 30 years old, respectively, or that presidents must be at least 35. What is interesting, however, is how little of the Constitution consists of such technical and unambiguous provisions. There is no scholarship seeking to establish the original public meaning of the phrase, have attained to the age of 25 years. The stuff of constitutional law are what former Justice David Souter calls the Constitution's many deliberately open-ended guarantees. When, in a 1958 case, Chief Justice Earl Warren said that the Eighth Amendment, quote, must draw its meaning from the evolving standards of decency that mark the progress of a maturing society, he referred to a fact. Standards of decency do evolve, which is not to say that they invariably become better. Evolving is not a synonym for improving. Still, it would be peculiar to insist that a conscientious originalist in the 21st century must construe the Eighth Amendment's prescription of cruel punishments with reference to the 18th century's public understanding of cruelty. Surely, an originalist analysis should say, the Eighth Amendment's meaning is that the framers intended a society in which government would not practice cruelty, and it falls to every generation to guarantee that its practices conform to this original intent. Yale Law School's Jack Balkan calls for fidelity to the original meaning of the Constitution's text as this meaning is derived with reference to the rules standards and principles explicitly or implicitly in the text. The Constitution, he says, is basically a plan for politics. Its practical initial purpose was to ignite American politics. Its long-term purpose was and remains to make politics safe, meaning not dangerous to liberty. Balkan does not recommend just this or that doctrine of constitutional construction. Rather, he recommends using all of the various modalities of interpretation, arguments from history, structure, ethos, consequences, and precedent. Advocates of originalism, adhering to the original public meaning of the words of the text, should not simply favor what Balkan terms the original expected application of the text. Rather, they should discern and apply to contemporary circumstances the original intent of the framers. Balkan terms this idea living originalism. Quote, in every generation, we the people of the United States make the Constitution our own by calling upon its text and its principles and arguing about what they mean in our own time. It took time, meaning historical learning, for the nation to come a century after ratification of the 14th Amendment's affirmation of equal national citizenship to the conclusion that this required equal rights for women. The doctrine of original expected applications could not countenance this just outcome. The fact that the framers adopted general and abstract concepts meant that subsequent generations would have no alternative 
to working out the scope and application of the abstractions to changing concrete circumstances. Hence, as Balkan says, the Constitution commits the country to the tradition of continuous arguments. This guarantees the perpetual frustration of all those who hanker for a theory of constitutional construction that will deliver the serenity of finality. It also consigns all generations to endless arguing. The fact that ratification of the Constitution meant a contentious American future was, Balkan notes, immediately demonstrated by the heated argument that erupted and provoked the emergence of political parties, which the framers neither desired nor anticipated, about whether the Constitution's enumeration of Congress's powers authorized Congress to charter a national bank. In this argument, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison, who wrote 80 of the 85 Federalist Papers, were at daggers drawn. Americans who find arguing stressful or otherwise unsatisfying should consider finding another country. <laughs> it is not quite right to say, as Justice Scalia did, that the Constitution's whole purpose is to prevent change, to embed certain rights in such a manner that future generations cannot readily take them away. Rather, the government's Madisonian architecture was designed to refine and elevate opinion so that future generations would not want to take away important rights. Strong desires that majorities have over time are probably going to be satisfied eventually. So, attention must be paid to the shaping and moderating of those desires. Be that as it may, those of us who believe that courts have been too permissive and discerning and deferring to a merely rational basis for this or that legislative action advocate a more engaged judiciary. The principle of judicial restraint, distilled to its essence, is that an act of the government should be presumed constitutional and that the party disputing the act's constitutionality bears the heavy burden of demonstrating unconstitutionality beyond a reasonable doubt. The contrary principle, the principle of judicial engagement, is that the judiciary's primary duty is to defend liberty, and that the government, when it is challenged for an action that limits the liberty of the individual, or of two or more individuals engaged in consensual collaborative undertakings, bears the burden of demonstrating that its action is in conformity with the Constitution's architecture the purpose of which is to protect liberty. The government dispatches this burden by demonstrating that its action is both necessary and proper for the exercise of an enumerated power. A state or local government dispatches the burden by demonstrating that its act is within the constitutionally prescribed limits of its police power. Does judicial engagement make the judicial branch dangerous to the current scope of what is called, with much imprecision, majority rule? The one-word answer is yes. The three-word answer is not nearly enough. <laughs> How much would be enough? It is impossible to stipulate using precise guiding principles. We can, however, say this. When the Constitution's framers wrote its text, they committed speech acts that derived their meaning and still derive their meaning from their overarching intent 
in producing a document to create institutions consonant with the American purposes as stated in the Declaration of Independence. Today there is a quest for something that has proved and always will prove elusive, a single approach, a dis distilled into a concise doctrine for construing the Constitution, which means for applying it to concrete cases and controversies. So I regret to say there is today a similarity between the intensity of doctrinal hair-splitting among constitutional scholars in their quest for decisive certainty and final clarity, and the factionalism within the American Communist Party in the 1920s and 1930s, when the number of ideological schisms was more impressive than the number of the party's members. At one point, a faction that was loyal to Jay Lovestone was denounced by protesters wielding signs that read, Lovestone is a Lovestoneite. <laughs> this action was true, but not clarifying. <laughs> Neither was Justice Clarence Thomas very clarifying when, in a 1996 speech, he said, quote, the Constitution means not what the court says it does, but what the delegates at Philadelphia and at the state ratifying conventions understood it to mean. We as a nation adopted a written constitution precisely because it has a fixed meaning that does not change, end of quote. The meaning, however, is not fixed only by how the delegates and the conventions understood the immediate applications of what they were doing. If they understood their handiwork as providing institutional means to the Declaration's ends, then the fixed meaning of the Constitution is to be found in its mission to protect natural rights and liberty in changing, unfixed circumstances. Fidelity to the text requires fidelity to some things that were, in a sense, prior to the text, the political and social principles and goals for which the text was written. It was written in order to be instrumental to goals served by the principles. With an asperity born of exasperation, Scalia once wrote, if you want aspirations, you can read the Declaration of Independence, but there is no such philosophizing in our Constitution, which is a practical and pragmatic charter of government. Oh, are we to conclude that philosophy is impractical and unpragmatic? There is no philosophizing in the Constitution until we put it there by construing it as the charter of government for a nation that is, in Lincoln's formulation, dedicated to a proposition, a proposition that Scalia dismissed as philosophizing, the proposition that all men are created equal in possession of natural rights. In the words of constitutional scholar Walter Burns, the Constitution is related to the Declaration as effect is to cause. Or as Lincoln said in his House Divided speech, the Constitution is the frame of silver for the apple of gold, which is the Declaration. Silver is valuable, and frames serve an important function. But gold is more valuable, and frames are of subsidiary importance to what they frame. Today, the apple nourishes those of us who believe that the judiciary has been too much, has been much too accommodating to legislatures that are too responsive to majorities or to make-believe majorities 
that are too indifferent to individual rights. About all this, there are, always have been, and always will be strong differences of opinion. So, again, if you do not like constant high-stake arguments about fundamental things, you should, as I say, try another country. If, however, controversy is for you as it is for me, life-sustaining oxygen, step inside conservatism's big, fractious tent. Four decades have passed since an intellectual Democrat who became my very best friend, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, said with a mixture of admiration and regret that the Republican Party had become the party of ideas. Recently, this party has worked hard to refute that description. <laughs> this, much, this much, however, remains true. The most interesting political arguments today are not between progressives and conservatives, but rather are intramural arguments among conservatives. It also is true that arguments within a family sometimes have a particularly serrated edge. Never mind. Human beings are, as Aristotle said, language-using creatures. More precisely, forgive my audacity in presuming to improve Aristotle, Human beings are persuading and persuadable creatures, which is why things like the Cato Institute exist, and why we are here today, and why constitutional argument is such exhilarating fun, and why I am grateful to Roger Pilon for the privilege of participating in today's episode in America's unending argument about fundamental things. But speaking of fun, I am acutely aware I am standing between this audience and good food and adult beverages. So, I shall now subside serenely confident that what I have said will ignite arguments that will begin, as I say to you, thank you for allowing this non-lawyer to step upon your turf. Thank you. Thank you very much, George, for that extraordinary discussion. You have captured the very essence of what we try to do here at the Center for Constitutional Studies and have tried for the last 30 years to do. Let's now open it up to a few of your questions before we enjoy our reception. Please wait for the microphone to come to you and identify yourself in any affiliation that you may have. Do we have questions? Ah, right here. There's the gentleman up there. Uh, Trey Mayfield, Jurist Day. Uh, Mr. Will, thank you very much for that thoughtful speech. Uh, what are your thoughts on a counter-majoritarian institution that was not contemplated by the founders and did, really did not rear its head until approximately 100 years later namely the Senate filibuster? Uh, the Constitution is, is uh, quite clear that the, both bodies of Congress can make their own rules. That said, uh, it, it seems to me clear that just as a policy matter, not a matter of constitutional interest, but of intense policy interest, the filibuster, as it has been practiced for the last 40 years or so, uh, does not serve its stated purpose, which is A, to encourage deliberation, and B, to encourage compromise. It encourages neither. 
I would like to see the rule change so that those who wish to filibuster must hold the floor uh, and that they cannot prevent debate on the measure to proceed to debate. Uh, that would, would uh, restore the filibuster to uh, what it was designed to be, which is a tremendous inconvenience for everybody. For the, for the purpose of getting both sides to sue for peace. So I, I think the filibuster as, uh, went most badly awry when they said you can filibuster, A, by simply announcing a filibuster, and B, you can filibuster the motion to proceed to uh, consideration of, of a measure. Next question. All the way in the back, we have two questions. Let's take them one after the other. So putting all this philosophizing. Uh, could you identify yourself, please? Uh, Bob Fitzpatrick. Putting all this philosophizing aside, um, who wins, Oakland versus the Yankees? And <laughs> do the Atlanta Braves win it all? Uh, Oakland and no. Uh, Gene Meyer. Um, With the Federalist Society, yes, is that yes, the same we, Gene Meyer? Yes, that, 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 that one. Not, 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 not the one who uh, used to uh, edit the Washington Post. He's long dead. <laughs> on the Washington Post. I did have a question on the... Uh, uh, you, you mentioned uh, fa fairly often uh, the intent of the drafters. And one of the problems, which was really corrected fairly early on in this area, was realizing that intent is very tough because a lot of different people were involved in writing a lot of this, even if you could figure out exactly what their, their, their intent was. Um, and that's where a lot of the effort, emphasis on meaning comes, uh, on, the, on the whole emphasis on original meaning. Um, I'm wondering how you how much that changes anything for you. I think it's a distinction without a difference. My point about speech acts, which I had to make briefly and uh, elliptically, is that you cannot understand uh, the meaning of a speech act, and writing a constitution is a tapestry of speech acts. You cannot understand that without understanding the intent, which is to say meaning and intent cannot be severed, I don't think. So, you're, I mean, you're quite right. Discerning intent is difficult. All of this is difficult. And the quest for a formula that will take the difficulty out of constitutional convention is uh, doomed to failure. It's looking for precision where precision is not possible and probably not advisable. Uh, George, let me... Uh Tighten up uh, Gene's question just a little bit. Uh, an example in which this issue often comes up is the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause when the framers of that clause here sitting in the District of Columbia um, wrote that. Um, they, had, they were surrounded by segregated schools, which continued for decades thereafter. They weren't just surrounded by, they were funding. Yes, that's right. They, Congress that's, ran the District of Columbia then. Well, yeah. well stated. Uh, and the, so the question is, uh, the, the difference between original public meaning, which has come to be thought of mm -hmm. as what originalism is all about, as opposed to original intent. They did not intend 
uh, the clause, one can imagine, to prohibit uh, segregated schools, yet that could be said to be implicit in the very meaning of equal protection. So how do you square that from a methodological point of view? Well, first I would retreat to Professor McConnell, former Justice McConnell, who in a 90-page Virginia Law Review article uh, 20-some years ago, I guess by now, uh, tried heroically and with considerable persuasiveness to argue that, in fact, uh, if you look at the legislative history, which some people would say we're not supposed to do, and if you would look at, at uh, uh, various constituencies in the country, that, in fact, uh, a substantial portion of those who voted on and then ratified the 14th Amendment did favor and did think it meant striking down segregation of public schools. However, I think he's probably proving too much, uh, although he does it, as I say, with great verve and imagination and diligence. Uh, it, it seems to me, again, what did they mean by equal protection and why did they think it was important? Once you explore that, that form of their intent, you see that the public meaning, uh, the, the meaning, not the public meaning contemporaneously, but the meaning of the intent and the meaning of the text and the speech acts can be uh, accommodated to saying this should have been swept in in the first place. An example is the difference between Plessy and Brown. David Souter, in a really tremendous speech at Harvard to, uh, uh, about five years ago, said, for the justices on uh, the Plessy Court, all of them with living memories of the Civil War and slavery, separate but equal seemed wonderful. Two, uh, 50 some years later, it didn't seem so wonderful. The idea of equal protection had changed with the experience of the country. And I, I would go so far as to say, and indeed do say in a book coming to better bookstores near you everywhere, but not till next June, uh, that any theory of constitutional construction that could not in the middle of the 20th century find racial seg school segregation uh, violative of constitutional values and intent uh, should be scrapped and another one found. Well, I'll have to think about that. Mm -hmm. uh, That's my point. <laughs> <laughs> the gentleman right up there. Bob Trento, Cato member and donor. George, I'd love to get your thoughts on this travesty going on in this town with Judge Kavanaugh, the, the Spartacus moments and now this and... Uh, I don't see anybody winning, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this. No, it's, it's, it's desperately sad. Everybody is going to come out of this diminished, the country more embittered. Uh, we're now in a, a, a downward spiral of, of animosities that began in, uh, well, actually 31 years ago right now with the Bork confirmation, subsequently followed by the Clarence Thomas one, which bears eerie and suspect similarities to this current episode. I mean, there are lots of thoughts. First of all, I mean, 
flippantly, I would say. Um, I, like a lot of other high school boys, spent my entire high school years trying to be sexually inappropriate. Um, <laughs> but to be serious, um, this isn't a he said, she said in the normal sense. She said X happened, he said never happened. She doesn't say when the party was or where it was. Her, there's no, what gives a lot of the Me Too uh, revelations from women uh, momentum for respect is not that they're coming out now, but that they confided their experiences contemporaneous to the experience to friends and, and others. She did not do that until 2012. She did it to a marriage, uh, a couple's counselor whose notes on what she said do not agree with what she now says. Uh, she says in her letter to Diane Feinstein that the caused her to have, I think she called it medical attention. She seems by the phrase medical attention to mean the couple's counseling that occurred in 2012, nothing contemporaneous with the assault such as it was, if such it was. So, the, I mean, there are lots of, we're learning far more than any of us really want to know about how to handle uh, these accusations. But uh, it does seem to me that, that uh, drunken behavior by teenagers at elite schools, which is one of the oldest traditions of Washington secondary education, um, that there, there really is a statute of limitations. Let's take one last question, the gentleman right up here. Bill Hempler, uh, American Financial Services Association. First off, thank you for your book on Wrigley Field. Um, but my question builds on, on the last gentleman. You mentioned the 17th Amendment, and I'm wondering if you could provide a little more context there as to why we as a country decided to, to set aside the, the framers' intent and whether or not you think if the um, Senate was still elected indirectly, we'd be suffering any of the circus that was just talked about. I think we'd be, you can't prove this, but my speculation is there'd be less circus involved. Uh, the reason the 17th Amendment was passed was that progressivism was in high tide. Uh, plebiscites were being instituted in Wisconsin, the so-called Wisconsin Way, and and uh, Hiram Johnson and others in California. That is, the, the voice of the people was supposed to be heard loud and clear. The, uh, the uh, 17th Amendment was ratified in uh, 1913. In 1912, you had two progressive candidates running against one conservative, Wilson and Teddy Roosevelt against uh, William Howard Taft. But for the heroic decision of some people, Eulahu Root for one and Henry Cabot Lodge for another, who were boon companions of Teddy Roosevelt, loved the man, but opposed him in that election um, because they realized that if, if Teddy Roosevelt won, we would have two progressive parties. And they, in a sense, saved the two-party system. Uh, that's why it was passed, was uh, the rising tide at that time that said, uh, uh, classic Madisonian Republican measures, that is to make 
the expression of public opinion indirect and delayed. Uh, in the title of uh, Greg Weiner's wonderful book on medicine's philosophy, Medicine's Metronome, to slow things down. Uh, the, 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 it was to break this metronome that progressivism set out and with the 17th Amendment uh, struck a great success for their point of view. The, um, 1913, I believe, was the year that Woodrow Wilson said that the Constitution is not a straight jacket, uh, that it allows maximum latitude. Yes, also the year we got the income tax. So. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, the, the analog, the complement to the 17th. All right, let's uh, now, I'm sure George wants to have a glass of wine, and probably you do too. So please join us in Winter Garden. And thank you for today.